0: Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. For free resources and free messages, visit our website, friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or call us for more information at 800-247-3051, 247 3051 Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor.
1: I called Abraham alone. That's the picture. He says, look unto Abraham, your father. So God says to the Jewish people, they need to see Abraham all alone. And when he was alone, then they need to see, I called him. So why does God want to put that picture over the fireplace? You all understand that it doesn't say in the Bible that he wanted to put it over the fireplace, right? (laughs) That's just, it doesn't matter. Anyway, so God called Abraham when he was all alone, when he felt all alone. And any Jewish person who comes to God, who comes to Jehovah Jesus, who comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will, take it from me, feel all alone. All alone. The Bible calls that person an outcast of Israel because he's all alone. He's separated from his Jewish people. He is alone. And just like Abraham, God will call that person alone and gather him up as an outcast of Israel. And this is what he said in Psalms 147, 2, the Lord doth build up Jerusalem. He gathereth together the outcasts of Israel. And in Isaiah 56, 8, the Lord God which gathereth the outcasts of Israel. Say it, yet will I gather others to him besides those that are gathered to him. That's a great verse. Take time to look at it later. Isaiah 56, 8, because it's a verse that describes the church made up of believing Jews and Gentiles. In that verse, the Jewish believers in the church are called the outcast of Israel. God says he'll gather them to Jehovah Jesus, and they'll make part of his church. And then the other part in that verse says, yet will I gather others to him besides that are gathered unto him he gathers others. They're not called the outcasts of Israel because they're not the outcasts of Israel. They're the Gentile believers that he's gathered together to join the Jewish believers, all gathered around the Lord Jesus Christ. So the outcasts of Israel is a description of Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The remnant is the outcast of Israel. And for years, you know, I I was called by the anti-missionary group, the Jews for Jesus, in in, uh, an office in Baltimore and one in Los Angeles. I was referred to as the Jewish businessman that sends students into Jewish communities every summer to try to convert Jews to his Christianity. That's what they call me, you know. And someone wrote in a blog to the Jews for Judaism in Baltimore and said, no, you shouldn't call him the Jewish businessman. You should call him the former Jewish businessman. (laughs) It was very painful for them because, you know, Jewish businessman, they like that term, you know, the businessman part. So I've been defrocked. (laughs) It's so painful. And I'm no longer Jewish. Okay, so why? Because I'm an outcast of Israel. But that's okay, because I'd rather be an outcast of Israel and be gathered by Jehovah Jesus than to be not an outcast and not gathered. So an outcast of Israel is all alone, like Abraham was all alone. God called Abraham alone. God calls the outcast of Israel alone. And so with all his feelings of being a failure and what he lost and being alone, it's sad. It's sad in that state. And God comes to Abraham with these great words of comfort and encouragement. And he says, lift up in chapter 13, verse 10. is the one we have to parallel with the one in 13.14. 13.14, it says, God said, lift up now thine eyes. And that parallels to uh, verse 10, where it says, Lot lifted up his eyes. There's a parallel there. Lot lifts up his eyes, Abraham lifts up his eyes. So the similarity of the phrase is the parallel. So what did Lot see? What interested Lot? And what did Lot see that did not interest Lot? And what did Abraham see that interested Abraham? And what did Abraham see that did not interest Abraham? So in verse 10, Lot lifts up his eyes and he sees what can be immediately his right now. and That's interesting to Lot. And that makes Lot happy. Things that he can have now. Lush fields. And what Lot saw that did not interest him was what he could not have right now. That wasn't interesting. But in verse 14... Abraham lifts up his eyes and he sees God making these promises to him and for what he can have sometime later. And what interests Abraham is God who's making these promises. And so God makes Abraham happy. And what Abraham saw that did not interest him is what he could have right now that God was not giving him. And Abraham wanted nothing to do with anything that God was not giving him. He wanted nothing to do with it. Reminds me of my daughter-in-law, Jeanette, who watches her wait a little bit more than I do. But uh, anyway, so there was a chocolate cake in the refrigerator. And uh, she so says, Jeanette, there's a chocolate cake in the refrigerator. And she said, I want nothing to do with it. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. All right. So this is the difference between Abraham and Lot. Lot was encouraged with things. Abraham was encouraged with God. And Lot saw what attracted him, what he could get now. And Lot was not interested in these vague promises from God in the future. And Abraham saw what interested him, friendship with God. That was interesting to Abraham. And he saw what was not interesting, which was getting what God was not wanting to give him. So that's a challenge for us. We ask the question to ourselves, what interests us? Things that Lot found interesting and God that Lot found not interesting? or God that Abraham found interesting and things that Abraham was not, didn't find interesting. So as Abraham watched the land be taken away from him by Lot, he realized that he had made a choice. He had made a choice between the land now or waiting for God to give him the land later. And that choice so was really between the land and God for that moment. And by choosing God, he let the land go. But he really kept the better part. Because of the reason he got the better part is seen in the last verse of chapter 13. It says where Abraham removed his tent. Now that parallels with verse 12 of chapter 13. Because it says there, Abraham removed his tent, similar phrase, came and dwelt in the plain of, of Mamre, which is Hebrew, and he built there an altar unto the Lord. And then you parallel that, removing of the tent in verse 12, which is Abraham dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the City of the plain and pitched his tent towards Sodom. So Abram got the better part. Why? Because Lot ends up in Sodom and Abram ends up in an oak grove in Mamre, which is in Hebron. The word Hebron comes from the word Khabar, which means to have fellowship or communion. And so he ends up with a fellowship or a friendship or a communion with God. Now, when we come to chapter 14, that's a pretty long review. All right, we come to chapter 14. We have 12 verses in this chapter that we read. And this is a history. This is a history of a war between a group of four kings against another group of five kings. That's why it's called the War of the Kings. So these first 12 verses are this history of this War of the Kings. And this may have been what we don't know, but this may have been really the first world war. This may have been World War I. <laughs> since it involved the greater part of the inhabited world, or it may not have been the first war, but it's the first war that's recorded in the Bible. But the reason the details of this particular war are recorded for us is that by understanding the details of the war, it brings us into a knowledge of Abraham's involvement in it. And this gives us now another wonderful window into Abraham's life who is the one that God wants us to follow here. So in this history, we're going to see three points about Abraham. First, Abraham's desire to rescue Lot. That was very significant. Second, Abraham's acceptance of Melchizedek, the king of peace, and third, Abraham's rejection of the king of Sodom. So this is the points that, that are going to call to our attention as we get into this. And in these verses, we have the names of these all these people, very detailed. They never appear again in Scripture, these kings. Every city at that time evidently had a king. In verse 2, there were five kings that were over five cities. In verse 4, we read that for 12 years, those five kings had served one king, Loarmir who was king over the city of Elam. And verse 4 tells us that after 12 years, the five kings who were serving Kedorlaomer had said that they'd had enough. They were fed up, and they were going to rebel against the king in the 13th year, Kedorlaomer. So those five kings who rebelled were in the south. They were near the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. And Kedorlaomer is located in the north, along with his three other allies who came down with him to stop the rebellion, crush the rebellion. So the war is described in verses 5 through 11, and from the, sequences, the sequence of the cities that are destroyed, you look at them on a map, we can see that this is just a march south. Rather, we don't know, but it, it appears it's a rather quick march south. And so first they attack the Rephaims, who were uh, evidently a tribe of giants that went extinct. Then they come to Asheroth-Kanaim, and it's mentioned that this is the east of Jordan. This is where Og, we'll find later, king of Bashan, the Amorites, uh, lived who we read about in Deuteronomy and in Psalms. March keeps going southward. It's described then to come to the Zuzims, the Ham, the Emims, the Horites. And uh, then they seem to double back, and they conquer the Amalekites. And then the Amorites, who lived on the west side of the Dead Sea, get involved in the slaughter. And the description of this war is a little bit like a blitzkrieg. <laughs> it's going very quick. Cities falling one right after the other. And destruction and the wake of Kedol with his three confederate kings. And it seems in verse 8 that Kedol and his three kings, they took some time, evidently, to regroup in this, the Vale of Siddom. And verses 7 and 8 tell us that there is, in that Vale where the five kings, that include the king of Sodom and King Gomorrah, they join the battle there against Kedol with his three kings. So that's why it's five kings against four kings. And in that place seems to be the place of the decisive battle, the last battle, in this great uh, venture. And what happened in that battle is described to us in verse 10, as we're told in, in the Vale of Siddam, there were slime pits or pools of asphalt. And this seems to be an area where there is asphalt. As a matter of fact, pockets of asphalt have been found in the bottom of the Dead Sea. So anyway, not that we need confirmation, but anyway. So we're told in verse 10 that when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, along with their armies, when they fled from Kedolomir, that they fell into these pools of asphalt. Maybe some of the army drowned. We don't know, like quicksand. Maybe they just became trapped and they became an easy, easy people to slaughter. And then the rest of them ran up into the mountain for their lives. And so then we're told in verse 11 that Kedolomir took the spoils, from Sodom and Gomorrah, and he starts back home. He's done. He's finished. So in verse 12, we're told that among their captives, Cedulamur took Lot and everything he had as well, so much for his things. And he starts back home. And he has, so we can picture it now, Cade del has succeeded. He has successfully crushed the rebellion. And he's now leading his victorious army back home. His army is strong. His army is large. His army is encouraged. His army is rested up. His army is enriched with the spoils of war. They were fresh from blood. And they had riches. They had women. They had slaves. And this army was now, as the last word in verse 12 tells us, departed. So they're on their way home, and they're looking forward to returning home with all the reports of their war and the evidences of their good, great victories in the south, and they're looking forward to the celebrations and distributing all the wealth. And Lot was among them. Lot was among the spoils, and all of Lot's wealth was also there because Lot was a slave of war. He was a captive. And so what happens, verse 13, is someone comes and tells that someone who is described as one who had escaped And he brings Abram the report of what had happened. Now, we don't know if this man who came to Abram escaped from being captured by fleeing to the mountains, or if he had escaped after he was captured. He's just described as one who has escaped. And he tells Abram. So, first we see Abram as described here as Abram the Hebrew. This is the first time this word is used in the Bible, Hebrew. The word Hebrew is not at all clear what it means it comes seems to come from a root that means to cross over so it's been said that the word means crossing over the euphrates a person who crosses over it's also been said that this means a person of dusty feet it may i don't know it may describe that's how dr yamaguchi used to describe it at miami but anyway or it could mean the descendants of this man we don't know anything about named heber other than he was the grandson of noah through shem but the name hebrew seems to have something to do with uh, not Hebrew national hot dogs, but (laughs) which Costco got rid of. It was a great shame. It doesn't matter. But it seems to have something to do with the meaning of a person who was from another place. From another place. Now, we read there that there was this lone Amorite uh, there in this area who was confederate with Abraham. And that there's no indication at all that that confederacy meant anything because when Abraham goes after uh, to recover Lot, there's no indication that this Amorite is anywhere to be found. So he doesn't seem to be a part of Abraham's military uh, overture to save Lot. Now, as Escape is bringing Abraham this report of what happened in verse 14, when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants. So, what we read here in verse 14 is a description of Abraham that as soon as he hears, That lot is taken. Abraham just springs up into action. Springs. He's launching this military campaign. It seems suicidal. I mean, Abraham, what in the world is he doing? He only has 318 men, armed men, and he's going to go fight an army that we don't know is probably in the tens of thousands. And he's going to challenge this great army with 318 men. This army that Abraham's going to challenge here, they're fresh from blood. They've got the taste of blood in their mouth. The army is the best of the best. They're the survivors of all those many wars. They perfected their military strategies. Their techniques have been tried and proven. They're an invincible fighting force. They're a machine. And the army that Abraham is going to go challenge is greatly encouraged. They're brave. They're encouraged to think there's no one they can't conquer. They, have, have, they haven't lost a war. And so this is the Goliath army that Abraham is going to go challenge. And as for Abraham, he's only got 318 men who had no experience in war. This is the only war that we read about that Abraham was ever involved in. And we have to think of what it meant in verse 14 when it says that Abraham's servants were trained. I don't know what they were trained in. Maybe they'd never seen battle before where they trained in military operations. So with all this against Abraham, it looks to everyone that Abraham and his men are going to be slaughtered by the army of Kediloramir. Why was Abraham willing to risk his life and the lives of his men? Was Abraham risking his life to save his wife, Sarah? No, she had not been taken. Abraham had no reason to risk his life for save Sarah. Sarah was not taken captive. Was Abraham being threatened by this great army of Kedol and he had to fight to defend his house? No, that army was finished. They were going home and he was not in danger of being attacked. He had no reason to risk his life to defend his house. What was Abraham risking his life for? To save Lot? Lot, who had the quarrel with him. Lot, who took advantage of Abraham and took all the best grazing land and left Abraham with nothing. Lot, who pushed Abraham away and separated himself from Abraham and separated himself from Abraham's purity of his life and chose to live among the Sodomites. Abraham should walk into what looks like sudden death with just 318 men against tens of thousands to save Lot. That's what we read in verse 14. As soon as Abraham hears the news, just like that, not even a thought. He says, let's go, let's go. What fearlessness, what bravery, what courage. Is this fearless, brave, courageous Abraham... The same one we read about turned back in Genesis 12, 11-13. It came to pass, is near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai, his wife, Behold, now I know that thou art a fair woman to look upon. Therefore it shall come to pass when the Egyptians see thee, they'll say this his wife, they'll kill me, save thee alive. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister, may be well with me for thy sake. My soul shall live because of thee. That Abraham, is that the one we're talking about in chapter 12? So afraid of his own shadow? Egypt! We're going to. Be, we're forced to go into Egypt. Chapter twelve. He's in a panic attack. He can't breathe. He's imagining the Egyptians are going to kill me to get my beautiful wife. In chapter twelve, he's hiding behind his wife's skirt as a scared little boy. He's saying, Sarah, lie for me, lie for me. You tell him you're just my sister. Don't tell him you're my wife. Leave me. Let him leave me alone. If you don't do this, they'll kill me. It's better for you to become immorally defiled by that filthy lecher, Pharaoh, as long as my life is not at risk. <laughs> I'm afraid to die, Sarah. Give yourself up to adultery and defilement. Become the wife of Pharaoh to save me alive. I don't want to die, Sarah. Save me, Sarah. Abraham first, Sarah last. <laughs> you know, If you love me, Sarah, do it for me. I'm afraid to die. Save me, Sarah. It's hard for us to read all these cowardly words of Abraham afraid to die, begging his wife with words like, that it may be well with me, that my soul shall live because of thee. In chapter 12, we saw an Abraham that was not right. In chapter 12, we saw a fearful, cowardly Abraham, not willing to risk his life to save his own wife, Sarah, from being taken captive. Is this the same Abraham? In chapter 14, 14, where we read, he hears this and, and he arms his train service. What happened? How did the fearful, cowardly, quivering Abraham, afraid of the thought that he might die, in chapter 12, become the fearless, brave, courageous Abraham willing to risk his life against great odds for a lot who had wronged him in chapter 14, 14. I mean, 13, 13. All right. So how did the fearful, cowardly Abraham become this fearless, brave Abraham? One word. Repentance. Repentance. How did this change take place in Abraham? There's just one thing that stands between chapter 12 and chapter 14 an altar. An altar. At that altar, Abraham confesses to God his sin and his disgust with himself. At that altar, Abraham asks God to change him from being a fearful coward who dishonored God into a fearless, courageous man who honors God. At that altar, Abraham says, I'm not the man I should be, but by the grace of God, I will become the man that I would be. At that altar, he says, in essence, the words of Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Abraham says, I am myself, I'm a coward. I can't do brave things, but I can do brave things. I can do courageous things. I can do right things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And God says, yes, you can, Abraham, because as you yield yourself to me, then what will happen is described in Philippians 2.13. God that will work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I'll work in you, Abraham. Through your repentance and your yielding to me, I'll change what you will. I'll change what you do so it will please me. So in chapter 12, we saw that Abraham was not thinking right. It was not right for him to be full of fear. We saw that Abraham that was not talking right. He was not saying right things. To Sarah. We saw an Abraham that was not doing right by not protecting his wife and claiming she was just his sister, not his wife. In chapter 14, we see a converted Abraham, a transformed Abraham. An Abraham who's now thinking right. No fear if God's with him. He's now talking right. He's saying that Lot is my brother, calling his Lot his brother, he's pulling Lot close into him. We see an Abraham who's doing right, he's training his armed servants to pursue the captors, delivered Lot. What we see here in Abraham. He was not right in chapter 12, and now he's right in chapter 14. And so what has God given to us to do that for us, to change us? 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. God has given us the Bible for doctrine, to show us what is right. For reproof, to show us where we are not right for correction to show us how we can get right, for instruction to show us how we can stay right so we can stop being the Abraham of chapter 12 and become the Abraham of chapter 14. So in verse 14, we see this act of supreme bravery that Abraham had this wonderful opportunity to not hide, and he did it. And that closed the chapter on 12. And there's another thing of his act of repentance. Whereas Lot had pushed himself away, Abraham pulls him in and calls him brother. And the quarrel is past. It's a thing of the past for Abraham. It's forgotten. It's forgiven. It's never going to be brought up again. It's the we be brethren man now. And so what Abraham has done is he has now become the essence of Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Abraham said, I'm a friend of Lot's, and I will love him at all times. Even in the time of the hottest argument and fight, I will love him. And Abraham says, I will view myself as Lot's brother. When adversity comes, when the adversity of being taken captive comes, Abraham said, I was born for that. I was born for that adversity. Nothing's going to stop me. And so Lot's going to see what a real brother now looks like, and Lot's going to see Abraham who's either going to deliver him or die, trying to deliver him. That's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the friend that loves at all times. During the times when we were lost sinners in rebellions against him, he loved us, a friend loving at all times. He was literally born for our adversity. When he was born, the angels came and they said, She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He is the brother that was born for our adversity, to meet the need of us to be safe from our sins. He was born, he was born to not only risk his life to save us, but to die to save us from our sins. He was born to justify us. He was born to save us from hell. Just 318 men, Abraham goes out. Gives us the exact number, 318. If it's there's 317, it wouldn't have been as good. There's 318. Well, not about 300, but 318. And he stands there against this myriad of soldiers, and they're thinking to themselves. See, Gideon gave his men the opportunity, if they were afraid, to go home. Abraham didn't do that. Wise man. <laughs> Gideon stood there with 300, and Abraham stands there with 318 but God did, and we'll see our next time, a great victory with just 300. God seems to like 300. He just 300. And Abraham could repeat the words of Asa in Second Chronicles fourteen eleven. Asa cried unto the Lord his God and said, Lord, it's nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee. And in thy name we go against this multitude, O Lord. Thou art our God. Let not man prevail against thee. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for teaching us a little bit today of what it means that you are the God of Abraham. In Jesus' name,
0: amen. Thank you for listening to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. If you would like to hear more of this message or other messages by Tom Cantor, visit our website, friendshipwithgod.org. That's God. Friendshipwithgod org or go to itunes.com and search for the friendship with god podcast all messages are cataloged by date and all available for free listening and free download you can also call us directly for more information at 800-247-3051 800-247-3051 thanks for listening to friendship with god with tom Cantor. Join the Creation Earth History Museum for our 10th Annual Museum Day Family Festival, Saturday, September 26th. Hi, this is Jason Payne, museum curator, and I want to personally invite you and your families to a free, fun-filled event, including new exhibits, testimonies from leading scientific experts, meet NASA astronaut Colonel Jeffrey Williams, and many others. Activities for the entire family. So join us Saturday, September 26th from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m., Go online to learn more at creationSD.org or call 619-599-1104. 619-599-1104.